how do you rebuild one of the world's most overpopulated capitals? And what happens to the old one? The city of Jakarta will no longer be the capital of Indonesia with plans to relocate the government to Kalimantan and Borneo. The new capital, named Nusantara, is a bid to redistribute wealth and create a new center of economic gravity. So how do you conceive an entirely new capital city? What are the main factors that need to be considered and what are the challenges ahead? Hello everyone, my name is Monita Rajpal. Welcome to The Drawing Board, a WATG podcast where we explore the ideas, the issues, and the trends that are being discussed within the design community today, as well as among clients and customers. Joining me on this episode is Chris Panfill, Vice President and Director of Planning and Urban Design at WATG. Chris's work has included master planning and urban design for new communities, resort towns and villages, as well as planning strategies for cultural tourism destinations. His work has taken him throughout Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and South America, including Brazil. Chris joins me from Singapore. Chris, thank you so much for being a part of this. It's my pleasure, Minita. Thank you. There are so many words that I've been reading throughout during research for this conversation. The words that kept popping up when it comes to Nusantara and describing this project of this new capital city for Indonesia, they were superb. It will be an opportunity. It'll be modern. It'll celebrate nature and it will be efficient. These are obviously the words that are being used by the Indonesian government and the supporters. How would you describe this project? I would put it in the context of a long history of urbanism where many other countries have relocated their capitals. And it's always been obviously you know, a big deal for these various countries to do so. And it's not surprising that governments would only describe these initiatives in the most positive terms, because at the end of the day, not only do they need investment, but they also need to motivate their people that this is the right thing to do. Both those people that are currently in the capital that still exists and those people that live on the land or near the land where the new capital will be. So it's, it's a hugely political undertaking that requires boosterism. So the language doesn't surprise me. It's by definition incredibly ambitious. I remember going to Brasilia for the first time in my life about 10 or 12 years ago. And I was actually quite surprised because I was ready to expect a sort of dead place that had failed because it was all of those things that you just described and recounted to me were the exact words or phrases that were used at the time that Brasilia came about. And so I think two things. We have to be patient. You have to take a long view of these things and probably remain reasonably optimistic and also realistic, because I think in the short term, it's going to be incredibly disruptive. And I think there'll be huge disappointments short term, because what are cities? Great cities are nothing other than incredible networks. And it's a sort of palimpsest of networks, right? One network sitting on top of another, whether it's a physical network of infrastructure, roads, connecting people and things and commerce to economic networks, social networks, natural networks, and all of those things 
it takes time for those networks to synchronize and to be effective, efficient, and ultimately to create a good place. And building a city and assuming that you can build a city the way you might build a building is ambitious to say the least, sometimes naive, if you have a short-term time horizon. For a longer-term time horizon, however, I think it might actually be okay. And one thing that amazes me about Indonesia in particular, and in that sense, I was reminded of Brazil because the Brazilian people and the Indonesian people sometimes remind me of each other in terms of their generosity of spirit and their approach to life, which is, you know, you can control some things, but you can't control all things. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sort of realism with, with a great sense of humor that I think helps when you face these extraordinarily ambitious projects, which oftentimes, precisely because they happen in countries that are not the wealthiest in the world, there are huge economic pressures as well. And if you go to Brasilia and you look at how some of these things were actually built, it's not the most amazing and efficient and secure and safe way of doing it, but it was done purely because of, of will. And, and that was also done before all the technology was put into place. Today, we have all of that technology available to us, right? Yes, that, that's true. That's true. And sometimes I think that makes it worse because it raises expectations even further. Although I suppose you could make an equivalent argument for Brasilia, where it was the, the building technology of, of, the, of the 60s and using reinforced concrete en masse and for the entire aspects and components of the city, whether it was infrastructure, whether it was representative buildings like the government buildings, or whether it was residential neighborhoods. What was great uh, there, and I think very enlightened, was the approach to landscape and making sure that landscape and simple things like tree planting was happening immediately and it was happening in parallel with the development of the city itself. And so that's why when you go to Brasilia today, it actually looks amazing because of the tropical environment, trees grow quickly and you, you know, have beautiful shaded streets, et cetera, et cetera. If we look at that, if we just take that point too, there were those who would say that Brasilia did come at a cost of the Amazon forest because building the infrastructure, the roads connecting Brasilia to the coastal communities came at the cost of deforestation, right? So if there was the other side to that too, there are always going to be concerns on how building will impact the current landscape. For sure, for sure. And, and that's the, the fundamental contradiction of building generally, right? Building means that you're making choices about what you think you're improving as opposed to what you may not be improving and where, in fact, you may be causing trouble and problems. I suppose from that perspective, you probably shouldn't build a new capital in Indonesia and you probably should never have built Brasilia. But of course, the political trumped all of those environmental or, or economic concerns. What amazes me, though, is that rather than, in the case of Brasilia, taking away from Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, it simply added another layer and it added another way of living in a city with, with an economy that had a slightly different focus. Mm -hmm. So rather than hyper-concentrating everything in either Rio or Sao Paulo, he said, all right, we're going to put the economic activity of government in a new place. And for developing countries, I think that's a, that's a smart way because then you create a different economic engine, which creates different opportunity for, for other people. It also decentralizes all the pressure on slum activities yeah. uh, and, and hyper-concentration of populations, which causes all sorts of social and environmental issues. It's interesting because President Widodo, he did say that this was also a response to inequalities or the focus of all resources and infrastructure on Jakarta itself, and that he needed to 
expand that. Mm -hmm. When you look at Nusantara, it's also about solving a problem, isn't it? Because Jakarta, as a thriving city as it is, it's got multiple issues. We're looking at a continuously growing population where, you know, within the center, we're looking at some 11 million people. And then if you expand it out to greater Jakarta, anywhere between 31 to 34 million people. And, and no one knows. Yeah. And no one knows. <laughs> no one knows and, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the infrastructure <clears throat> is is crumbling or it's it's not it has not been built to help or to even to grow with the population. And then on top of all of that, it's sinking. Land subsidence yes, is a the, huge problem, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly. And that's why I think in the in the case of Indonesia, it's probably exactly the right thing and probably should have happened a lot sooner. Because not only do you have a concentration of wealth in this huge country on the island of Java, but on top of that, you have the Javanese concentration of wealth and power in only one place, which is Jakarta. And so considering that it's a nation of, I believe, close to 17,000 islands, it's probably a good idea to start decentralizing some of these economic activities. And as government, how can you do that? Well, you can incentivize or you can set the example, right? And you say, we as government will relocate and we will start somewhere else. So I think in that sense, it's, it's exactly the right thing to do. What do you think um, about the area that was chosen? We're looking at this, uh, an area in um, East Kalimantan. It's some 1,300 kilometers away from Jakarta. They are saying it'll cover some 2,560 square kilometers, but the actual core of it, which will be used by the government, it's only going to be about some 66 square kilometers. So there's this massive expanse mm. of land on space that urban planners such as yourself or environmentalists as well are going to be very concerned about because we're looking at endangered species, animal species. We're looking at specific flora and fauna that that reside there. And of course, the indigenous communities that live there as well, whose livelihoods are also going to be affected. Talk to me about what you what you know about the space and how building a capital city will will work there. Ultimately, it all depends on infrastructure and the level of investment that's going to be made possible. I would think that when you talk about these enormous land areas, that's probably to be taken with a pinch of salt in terms of how quickly are we going to see physical change in those places. That will probably take a while. The danger is that if, if you ring fence the two and a half thousand square kilometers and then start messing in all sorts of pockets within that, that creates an issue. So for me, proof in that pudding will be, how is the implementation going to be phased? What what are the approaches to all of this, right? Because as I said before, the, the truth is that in building and especially in building cities, you are going to mess with natural systems. There's no, there's no question, right? And we look at some of the great cities of today, whether in the West or, you know, we're based in Singapore and Singapore is one of the most extraordinary cities that I've ever seen. However, if you do a comparison between before and after in terms of environmental uh, systems, in terms of uh, species, et cetera, et cetera, yes, we have a lot of trees in Singapore, and that's amazing because of microclimate and species that it harbors. But there's no question that in comparison to what was here before, it's a completely different environment today. Both it's for the cost of evolution, right? The cost of evolution, right? And and there were communities here that are no longer here because of the city that we have today. So I think that those are those are tough questions. And at the end of the day, for someone like a president of a country, you have to take these decisions at a very high level. And 
provided that you can take your people along and ensure that there is a benefit, which is not just accruing to the select few, but is noticeable and makes a difference in people's lives across the board, then it's probably the right thing to do. Because as you said, further concentration in Jakarta is just simply not an option, right? Not an option. And it's it's so bad, the sinking of the city is real. And to me, it'll be interesting to see whether other wealthy places that suffer from similar environmental problems, whether they can begin to help places like Jakarta figure out what to do in the long term. You, know, you probably know that even places like Miami suffer from very similar issues, mm. where the, the porous limestone and sea level rise, et cetera, et cetera, is actually creating flooding during all sorts of times. So there are global issues at play. How this will pan out in, in Indonesia is, is an open book. We, we don't know that, right? We'll, we'll have to watch that. But I think government and the business of government is probably a wise way of doing that. You know, I, I think it would take an awful long time to say to the private sector, you know, we want to incentivize you to move somewhere else. Mm. That's not going to happen, right? Yeah. So in a way, it, government has, it has the only choice. The question will be, is the government going to be successful to create a better quality of life in the new capital, such that some of the commercial activity will actually follow. To me, that's the interesting question, right? Because historically, that's tough to do, whether you look at the United States with Washington, D.C. versus New York, Philadelphia, and other commercial centers, whether you look at Brazil, if anything, Sao Paulo and Rio have become more of of commercial centers uh, rather than less. So, and, And yet, Brasilia has managed to create not only an economy of its own, but also an identity of its own. So the, the power of design and the power of great city planning, I think, is at play here. That's a very, I think, distinctive point that you've just made. I guess a very basic question, well, basic in the wording, not necessarily in the <laughs> execution, but where do you even start when you're talking about <laughs> creating a capital city? Where do you start? It's interesting, you know, and, and, and the even as architects, the usual response is, oh, you got to start with the landscape. You got to create the memorable open space, you know, or you got to create the thing that you can see from the air, right? So the aeroplane and the view from that becomes the important thing. And of course, these days, it'll be Google Earth, you know, how easy is it to identify in Google Earth, the new capital city. So the the 18th century solution, Washington, DC was this extraordinary mall that, you know, you can see from very, very far away. Uh, In Canberra, in Australia, it's, it's essentially a circular arrangement. But again, it's very simple. geometric shapes that you impose on the natural world in order to mark that difference of, you know, humans have been here, we've left our mark. And then the building slowly but surely can can literally build up over time because Mm. that will take a lot longer than the basic infrastructure and and the movements. And I suppose in the brilliance of of Brasilia is that it it operates at so many different levels. It's a kind of giant plan of an aeroplane, you know, so so the the implication and the symbolism of that, of the 20th century, power of the machine and all those things, right, encapsulated there. I think for Nusantara, it's going to be more about finding a response that somehow captures the imagination of how do you create a 21st century city that at least pays some attention to the environmental impacts Mm. of the new capital, precisely because it comes from a place that has such environmental problems. 
Brasilia didn't happen because of environmental problems in Rio. It was mm. probably far more social problems and ultimately a political move to kind of neuter a little bit the powerful economic classes and the commercial classes in those places, whether Sao Paulo or Rio. I, I don't think that's the case in uh, Indonesia. It's, mm. it's very much a 21st century crisis response. In the history of cities, there haven't been many places like that. Many cities have gone through horrible things, whether it was mm. war, plague, famine, fire. And yet most cities always get rebuilt in the same place. There are very few that will have then said, this was such a traumatic experience. We got to go somewhere else. Very, very few. And yet here we have that 21st century equivalent where you say, this is so bad. Mm. The city is sinking. We don't have the means or the technology to, to fix this. And it's better to go somewhere else. Why there? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know is the short answer. My suspicion is that it was it's a number of reasons. One of them, I'm sure, has to do with trying to spread the wealth and activity beyond Java yeah. as, as the kind of dominant island. I suspect there may also be a bit about, uh, are we all Indonesians or do we need to do something special on the island of Borneo or Kalimantan, as it's called in Indonesia, to make our mark and to unify and to create a symbol of uh, togetherness? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm speculating here. But all of these things play a part, right? Because it's such a hugely symbolic act that my suspicion is it's all of those and probably more that I may not know, right? <laughs> that may be unique to, to the president or to perhaps even geopolitical drivers that, that yeah. put the capital there. How do you define a capital city? It's a very good question. It's all about the symbolism of power and the power of symbolism, isn't it? That you you want to use your capital city as this is our shop window of our country to the world. Because if we have a state visit from someone else, they'll come to the capital city. They're not going to come to another city. They may also visit another city, but they're definitely going to come to the capital city. So therefore, how the impression that the capital city leaves is hugely important and crucially important, which is why I think in many traditional societies, you, you have the confluence of economic power, political power, and social power all in one place, because at the time you needed to be there. That's why Paris is what Paris is, and that's why London what London is, and it's probably why Tokyo is what Tokyo is, right? Because it's these kind of hyper-centralized uh, places. So when you pick that apart and you say, what is it that will actually symbolize us as a nation in a capital city? It gets really interesting really quickly, right? How do you how do you do that? And mm. if you compare it, uh, and if you look at different places and how they've done that, it was usually through a representation of the center of power, whether it's a palace or whether it's a palace of a house of representatives or whatever it is, right? But it's usually a building. So it'll be interesting to see how Indonesia chooses to do that in Nusantara over time, and also what it, what is going to be the first mark to, to place it there. But as I said earlier, I think the open space and the landscape becomes the key driver because it's it's one of the quick wins. You know, I mean, the, the, the capital in Washington, D.C. took a very long time to build. And so for, you know, for, for decades and decades in the 19th century, it was, it was a joke. And people were laughing and they were horrified when they had to go to Washington because it was mm -hmm. a swamp infested place. And I, I suspect it's going to be a little bit like that for Nusantara for a few decades before it establishes itself. Right? They are, uh, what yeah. are they, they're projecting, well, again, the word ambitious mm. is being mm. described here that it'll take 10 years 
yeah, I would take that with a huge grain mm. of salt. I think it'll be a lot more than 10 years. But I suppose the question would be, what could you do within 10 years such mm. that you, you, you've marked your place, you've put that flagpole on the island to, to say this is an important place for us and this will represent us? It'd be interesting to see what happens. I know that your design philosophy is approaching projects that are seen as financially viable with a good return for the clients that you work with. Is this, we're looking at some, what, the cost of about at least 32 billion US dollars. Is this financially viable? The great thing about financial viability is always the time dimension. Hmm. Right. Over what period of time? Most of my clients, they're not as patient as someone would have to be who builds a capital city for a country. So there's no way of answering that question. Because I would say any, you know, over any short-term time horizon, the answer, of course, has to be no. What the political and ultimate socioeconomic value of the new capital is, say, over three or four generations, that would be the interesting question. You know, if, if our great-grandchildren are going to look back and say, wow, that was a really smart move because look what we have today. Yeah. And this is why I always go back to Brasilia, where I met Brazilians who said, no, no, you have to see our capital city. It's this incredible place. Whereas others who were saying, oh my gosh, you know, that godforsaken place in the middle of the Amazon that should never have been built. So there, there is a, is a kind of narrative that will be interesting to watch how it evolves and what the leaders of the country do with that narrative, both to encourage a thriving place in the new capital city and also to unify, to use it perhaps to unify the country in ways that people even from far-flung islands in the far east of Indonesia might still find something that they can relate to more in this new city, which is truly Indonesian, as opposed to a Jakarta, which started as a Dutch colonial outpost. Mm-hmm. Right? When you talk about a, a capital city, right, it is not just a physical structure, but it is also very emotive. There is the sense of pride that a nation would have to identify the space as Mm. their capital. So when you are then changing a capital city, moving a capital city from one space to another, that sense of pride has to go with it. It has to be, if not replicated, but also built from an emotional perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're using the right word. I think it has to be built. And that may be even harder to do than building the physical infrastructure and the buildings for the new city. And I suspect it's it's a generational question more so than, you know, 10 years. Mm. I, I don't think that in 10 years you're gonna be you're gonna be seeing that, you know, the the kind of shift of saying, Yeah, no problem. I've been a person from Jakarta all my life, but now I identify with this place over in Kalamantan. You know, yeah. I don't think it works that way. So I think that will be a long, long time. As I said, though, before, I think the, the question will be for the future generations, is this new city able to offer a quality of life that exceeds quality of life as it is then defined in places like Jakarta or perhaps elsewhere in Java? So that people say, no, I, I, I don't work for government, but I'm going to start my business in Nusantara. I'm not going to go to these, these other places. That will be the interesting thing to watch. Mm-hmm. In other words, will the pride in the place be organic or will it simply be imposed because of national symbolism that invariably will have to be attached to the capital city? What do you think are the important lessons that will hopefully be not only learned, but also then executed in Nusantar, that the mistakes that were made in Jakarta, what do you think are the lessons that need to be 
adhered to in mm. the Santara. My hope is that future generations won't forget the lessons and they will listen and learn to listen to early signs and take them far more seriously than perhaps present generations have or, right. or even previous ones. And it's difficult because, of course, we're, we're, we're human. So there is an inertia argument. You say, oh, my God, we've invested all this effort, time, energy in, in building Jakarta. Okay, it's sinking a little bit, but we'll be okay. You know, yeah. To switch into a different mindset that says, Mother Earth is telling us something really important. We've got to act now. We can't wait and let our children have to deal with that problem. Mm-hmm. That, exactly. that, to me, would be a sign of true success. So if there were any sorts of issues that might come up in the future for Nusantara, is for then for people to say, we've got to act sooner. You can't just let things slide. Now, I'm, I'm sure, and I, I, I know from what I've seen and read, that you know we, we won't have <laughs> the sinking problem. At least we don't think we will. But who knows? There, there could be all sorts of other problems uh, mm-hmm. that, that crop up in cities everywhere and and always so i think it's it's an attitude and a mindset and as i said hopefully the lessons learned in jakarta will become true lessons that will be generous in spirit so that they can be applied to other particulars that might emerge in nusantara indeed anywhere else in in indonesia what goes into the master planning we always want to begin by trying to understand the place as much as possible. And by place, we mean not just the physical reality of what we see, uh, the flora, the fauna, the shape of the land. How does the land change over the seasons? What happens in the rainy season? What happens in the dry season? Try to learn all of that and understand it as, as much as possible. And then, of course, critically understand what you don't see, what are what we call the geotechnical issues of how stable is the ground, how uh, etc. That can hugely dictate where things get built and how they relate to one another. And in the tropics, of course, it's the whole climate issue, which is mm-hmm. huge. So the prevailing winds are extraordinarily important. And if you figure out a physical response through the urbanism, the architecture, and the alignment of streets that capture these breezes, it makes a significant difference, as do simple things like all streets have to be planted with trees Mm -hmm. so that you create natural shade. Again, Singapore is this extraordinary example where it's been demonstrated that we live in a city here that is consistently two or three degrees Celsius cooler than other places because of all the trees Mm -hmm. in everywhere. So it's things like it's not just that the trees look pretty, but they serve a really, really important purpose. So in other words, trying to merge what the natural environment of the place tells you with the ideas that you then superimpose and say, well, what are the objectives? What are we trying to do? Ah, capital city. Okay, we've got to think about symbolism. Well, what symbolism? How does that manifest itself in the urban spaces? Is there a particular objective about lifestyle? You know, these days, no matter where we work in the world, childhood obesity is an increasing issue, not just in the wealthy West or in wealthy North Asia, but everywhere. And so, There are ways of designing places that will encourage physical activity more than other places. It's sort of very obvious. So if you create amazing park systems, or even if you simply create pathways and sidewalks that connect things Mm -hmm. in an obvious and easy way, by the way, in, in ways that don't often happen in Jakarta today, for example, if those lessons are taken on board, then that's what we would bring next and say, well, what are the fairly simple responses that good urbanism can bring to this bigger set of questions, which could extend into public health, you know, for example, or you don't want to segregate and isolate old people 
All right, yeah. so we're not going to have a kind of, you know, section for all people. How do you bring schools together with other facilities that might invite the elder population to, to participate? So that comes into play. That dictates a lot how things work, how they connect, how they relate. And then, of course, it's, um, it's ultimately budget. How much money have we got and how do we spend it as effectively and as efficiently? That's on the, the things you see, the things you experience. Then, of course, there's the whole hidden network uh, mm-hmm. of, of some of the networks that I spoke about in the beginning, whether that's infrastructure, whether that's water, power, sewer. Where do we put the sewage treatment plant and how can we think of that in a more creative way so that it, again, works with the environment as much as possible? There are all these amazing ways these days of how you treat water that's not black water, but gray water. In other words, the water that comes from the sinks and the showers, not the water that comes from the toilets. And nature can deal with that in ways that are quite remarkable. So then you all of a sudden combine park space and open space with a degree of wastewater treatment. And in doing so, you create an outdoor educational environment for the kids. So all of a sudden, the the city becomes this palimpsest of networks that when done right is sheer brilliance because it then touches people in different ways, depending on what these people's interests are or what their reaction and interaction is with the city. And that's what distinguishes great cities from the not so great cities, right? The not so great ones are, we have one idea and we're going to do it and this is it. Yeah. The great cities are saying, no, this is actually a very complex system of things and of networks. And how can we understand these networks as best as possible? Lastly, the network of sociocultural presence and people, communities that currently live in Kalamantan. How do you respond to their desires, their wishes, their needs? And is there a way to bring their hopes and desires into the planning of the city and the making of the city Mm -hmm. so that they too might be proud as opposed to simply feeling, oh God, this is central government haven't taken my land and what am I going to do? I can't plant potatoes anymore. So how are there creative ways of, of bringing these people in, both economically, but also symbolically? And this goes back to how do you make sure that this is a symbol for the nation, not just for a powerful government? In your vast experience, when you look at the planning that's that you've worked on and with obviously this is relative to the industry or to the client that, that you are working with, but what has often been the priority for them and what you wish it would be instead? Yeah. It always depends on what is the client's objective commercially? Is the commercial objective the driver or is there another set of objectives that are ultimately more important than the commercial return? The commercial return is always important. We have to address it and we have to be able to speak intelligently about how will this make money and Mm -hmm. over what period of time. That's always there. Where it gets interesting, if someone then says to me, yeah, Chris, but that's not really the point. I've got some other drivers, some other desires of why we're doing this, and and here's why. Those are, unsurprisingly, the most rewarding projects. And I remember doing some work for the Aga Khan and the Aga Khan Development Network, where we quickly realized there is a whole other set of aspirations here that have little to do with financial return. And while, yes, the project has to demonstrate that perhaps in the long run, it makes a little bit of money, the important thing is what happens along the way. And how are we taking people, communities uh, along? And how do we provide economic development potential for these communities that are part of that system? 
I, I think that's why tourism is ultimately so important and so positive in its contribution, despite the fact that, yes, very often there are negative externalities and consequences to tourism that we need to understand. But its ability to act as an economic engine for a, a vast array of people of all sorts of skills and abilities is actually quite inspiring. And in that sense, a capital city is, is probably similar because it will have all sorts of requirements, not just for government, but also at the basic support level and ultimately to create community in those capital cities and in those government cities you need a lot more than just government buildings and uh, government lawyers it's an important so, legacy isn't it it is hugely important and uh, you know ultimately it's it is is the move that you're making in relocating the capital and relocating your government is that move powerful enough symbolically and economically as well as politically to help build community? Because unless you're able, unless that new capital city is able to build community, it's not going to succeed long term. Right? Yeah. But that would be the question. It's really you know, fascinating to watch um, what, what, will, what will happen. What you said before about the priorities is, you know, you have the economic, but then you said a very important word, why? the why behind it. What's your why behind what you do? It's because I believe in the power of design to transform, its ability to transform for the better. That's why I do what I do. I ended up in, in the world of tourism planning where urban classic urban planning is a small piece because there's a lot of urban tourism and there's a lot of urban communities in tourism activities and in tourism development components. But it, it is the incredible joy that you get when you realize that something you've worked on has actually made a difference in someone else's life. There's, there's nothing to me, there's nothing more powerful than to witness that and to experience it in whatever way. It doesn't matter. There was a project in Greece that I worked on many years ago in a part of the country that was very poor that tourists didn't know about. Everyone goes to Mykonos or the other islands. This was on the mainland. And a family decided that they wanted to give back to this community because that's where they came from originally. And they became to be very wealthy shippers uh, in the maritime world. And so over a long time, they bought up land and ended up building resort communities uh, in this part of Greece. And Whenever I go and visit places, I talk to the taxi drivers and I ask them about their lives. So we were invited back to go to this resort and uh, I asked the taxi driver, how is it going? And he said, it is amazing. He said, because my children now have a choice. Yes, they can go to Athens or they can go to Barcelona and go to university, but they can also stay here. And if they stay here, there's more choice than just to pick olives. And I just thought that was incredible. You know? And he was so proud. He was so proud that here was an economic engine that looked beautiful and you know, brought all these people from all over the world to this part of Greece. But more importantly, it did something positive for his kids. And that's to what made the difference. To say that it's life-changing, it sounds so... It almost as if that expression has been used so much that it, it loses its luster, but there is no yeah. other way to describe something like that. It is life-changing because it transcends generations, doesn't it? It does. But it's also true that these life-changing moments happen when the people who are behind them have a long-term view 
and they have patience. I get involved with a lot of projects that I'm very doubtful about because they're only about short-term gain. And if there's no commitment to a longer-term improvement to the future, then the accumulations of short-term gains may not necessarily come up with a better future for the people who are there. Is that the so, sign of the way we as human beings think right now is the sense that we, there's an, an immediacy to everything, we need to have everything now? I think so. I mean, a part of it, I'm sure, is human nature. We do seek gratification that's short-term rather than long-term, even if it's not in our interest. So it takes a little extra effort to realize, well, no, be patient because the longer-term gratification is actually better mm. and even more rewarding than the short-term. But that's you know, sometimes hard to see. I do think you're right. I, I think things like uh, technology and the expectation that everything is instant. You're sitting in the UK. I'm sitting in Singapore. We're we having a, a real-time conversation. Mm. Right? Uh, my grandmother would have thought that's a, that's a total miracle and cannot be possible. right? And kids today, of course, think, well, this is normal. So therefore, there is, a, I think, a growing expectation that things are instantaneous and that gratification will also be instantaneous mm. and immediate. And the idea that, well, you actually have to wait 20 years before you see anything you know, of substance is uh, it's a bit hard to swallow, I think. So it'll, it'll take some extra effort in future generations to bring that back and bring those values back about patience. So if we go back to the Nusantara balancing between the very human way of addressing a project, right? Of looking at a project, the human needs that we have, as well as the technologies that we are also having to use, the, the technologies that we also have available to us. How do you balance the two in terms of extracting from both the benefits of it? So for example, with the technology mm -hmm. side, how will technology be a huge bonus or an impact from a beneficial perspective in the building of Nisantara? Yeah, there's a lot of work being done, you know, currently about improving the environmental characteristics of buildings. You know, everything from CO2 emissions down to the materials that are actually being used. And then it's operations and technology. How can technology help in, at the obvious level, reducing energy during operations because all the light switches are actually motion censored you know very simple things like that mm. if we're talking about a whole capital city imagine that would make an enormous difference so i i suspect it's it's a little bit of that um where you say okay where can technology actually have the biggest impact the worry i have is that there is a kind of obsession with technology there's an obsession with a term that i'm not very fond of which is the smart city mm. you know? the smart city as as if there were a one size fits all and if you only figured out the smart aspect of a city then you could build these incredible cities everywhere i don't think that's the way it works you know mm -hmm. for, for certain parts of the world certain economies certain communities the smartest city might be the one that has no technology it's a very very subtle 
analysis, I think that needs to happen. If your objective is truly to, first of all, improve the lives of the people that are there as much as possible and provide them with opportunity, that might not be to say that, you know, every rubbish container in the parks and streets needs to have a sensor to tell the central data point that it's full. So it's technology is, is, is a very, very curious thing. On the other hand, speaking from, you know, old cities like, like London, for example, where there were desperate attempts to, to improve the efficiency of the uh, metro system of the underground. But of course, there were limits because the physical infrastructure is so old and is so small in many ways. Yeah. The technology was an extraordinary thing to create a safe environment for travel that allowed increase in the frequency of the trains that even 10 years ago would have been completely impossible because mm -hmm. it, it wasn't safe at the time. Now it is. Right? So I think technology is, is amazing, but it mustn't become the panacea to say, that if you have a problem, you just need to add more technology. I, I fundamentally do not believe that because the, our needs, desires, and the specific requirements in specific locations are so different. Which cities around the world, in your mind, have done it right? Got it right. I, I think it's a very personal question mm. because it ultimately, what you're asking me is, Chris, where do you think the good life is? And I think that answer is, is, is very personal and therefore very different. So I have cities that, that I love because I feel local in them. I feel I can fit, seek this place out in a way that works for me. So the, the two cities for me are, are London and Tokyo. Mm -hmm. One, because in one of them, I'm at home. I am a Londoner. Tokyo, I'm an, an utter stranger. Everything is so completely foreign to me. And yet the city has a, a way of embracing the visitor that makes you feel very welcome and it's safe and easy to get around. And it's a city of endless wonder to me. Mm. And so I, I, I love them both very, very much. Then there are funny, much smaller places that I think are as extraordinary in their own ways because they're, they're full of surprises. And from what I see of how the local population reacts and works, seem to have an incredibly high quality of life. And to me, Singapore is one of them. Mm -hmm. Vienna is another one. And Copenhagen is the third. Places that are, for a certain definition of quality of life, offer incredible value. In, in that regard. But it's, as I said, it's a very, very personal question. You've noticed that probably, you know, none of these cities are very car friendly. So I know that, you know, some of my other friends would say, you're crazy. You know, I love Houston, Texas, because there are no building, there are building codes, but there are no strict zoning codes, and I can drive everywhere with my car. So it's ultimately a question of what, what do you believe is, is the good life? Right? You I, love that. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I think it's a great place for us to end this conversation as much as I could feel I could talk to you for hours Chris we um, can do chapter two chapter three I would love four, that and I'd, I would love that one, that would be wonderful let's do let's, that let's keep this conversation going thank you so much for your insights on this ambitious project in Indonesia well it's not a, actually it's not even a project it's a plan it's now a, it's, it's yeah it's that's underway right. that's right. it's, happening. it's happening it's, it's, it's happening um it's happening. you're your insights are so valuable and so interesting. And I really do thank you for the time that you've taken to, to speak to me Absolutely. today. Absolutely. Take care. 
That was Chris Panfill, Vice President and Director of Planning and Urban Design at WATG. You've been listening to The Drawing Board, a WATG podcast. I'm Onita Rajpal. Until next time, thank you for joining us.